Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode of Communia Sanctorum is titled, Breaking Up is Hard to Do. In our study of the history of the church, we get to examine some periods when the followers of Jesus did some amazing, God-honoring, Christ-exalting, people-blessing things. In future episodes, we'll take a longer look at how the gospel has impacted history and world civilization for the better. But we have to be honest and admit there have been too many times when the church totally fumbled the ball. Worse than that, after fumbling, they stepped on and kicked it out of bounds. The danger that I face as we deal with these atrocious moments in church history is of being assumed to be hostile to the body of Christ. When I speak about the abysmal career of some of the popes, some listeners assume that I'm Catholic bashing. Later, when we get to the Reformation era and take a look at some of the reformers, I'll be accused of being a closet Catholic. So I want to pause here and say, this isn't a podcast about me, but I need to use me as an example. As most of you know, I'm a non-denominational evangelical pastor. I'm not a scholar, not even close. I'm just a guy who loves history and decided to share what he was learning about the history of the church with others because at the time that CS began, there just wasn't a short format church history podcast available. While I genuinely try to be unbiased in presenting the story of the church, it's inevitable that I'm going to slant the narrative at points. I've already made it clear that when I do offer mere opinion, I will try to preface it with a warning, but infrequent side comments can still color the material. Even what adjectives I pick reveal a bias. While I aim to be faithful in my own walk with God, my role in my family as a husband and a father, and my calling as a pastor, I freely admit that I'm still a man in process. I have many faults and a long way to go to be conformed to Christ's image. Keenly aware of how far I have to go is what causes me to wonder how God could use me. Yet, use me he does, week after week in my role as a pastor. I'm such a flawed vessel, yet God keeps pouring his grace through me. It's humbling. The point is this. While so much of church history is flat-out embarrassing, God still uses the church, still works by his Spirit through his people to accomplish his purposes. So when we see the church stumble... Regardless of what group it is, what era, what label is applied to those who mess up, let's not whitewash, edit, or redact. Let's tell it like it is. Own it as part of our history. But remember that while man fails, God never does. From the late 9th to 10th century, the position of the Roman bishop, once held by such godly men as Popes Leo and Gregory, was turned over to a parade of corrupt nobles who were anything but... This was a time when the position of Pope was a plum political appointment, with the potential of gaining great wealth and power for the Pope's family. The intrigue surrounding the selection of the Pope was vast and nefarious. The Italian heiress named Marozia controlled the bishop's seat at Rome for 60 years. She was one bishop's mother, another's murderer, and a third's mistress. In what just about everyone recognizes as a low point for the papacy, Octavianus, Morosia's grandson, celebrated his impending election as Pope John XII by toasting the devil. Once in office, his behavior was far from saintly. The immorality that attended his term was legendary. Corruption of the office didn't end with his death. Reform, well, it was desperately needed and many called for it. But one man's reform 
is another's loss of power and access to wealth. Though the western and eastern halves of the church had quarreled for centuries over minor doctrinal issues and who ought to lead the church, they still saw themselves as one body. That unity was doomed by many years of contention and the fragmenting of the world into conflicting regions brought about by the dissolving of the Roman Empire and constant invasions from outsiders. The emergence of Islam in the 7th century accelerated the break between East and West. We might assume that the two halves of the old empire would unite in the face of the Islamic threat, and there were times when that seemed hopeful. But the reality was, Islam presented a threat across such a huge front, the various regions of Christendom ended up having to face the threat on their own. Between the 9th and 13th centuries, three separate challenges split Christianity into two disparate camps. Like taps on a diamond, each furthered the emerging rift until finally the break came. The first tap had to do with the Nicene Creed, hammered out at the Council of Nicaea all the way back in the early 4th century, when Constantine was emperor. In the 9th century, the Nicene Creed still stood as the standard formulation for how Christians in the East and West understood God. But the Spanish church added something they thought would make the creed clearer. The original creed stated, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. The revised creed of the Spanish church said, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. This reflected the work on the Trinity that had been conducted by later councils. Remember, the very first councils were consumed with understanding the nature of Jesus and settled on the doctrine that he is both fully God and fully man. They labored hard to find just the right words to say that. Then they turned their attention to the issue of the Trinity, and after much labor settled on the wording that God is one in essence but three in person. For most people, that was enough. But theologians have minds that want to go further. They debated over how to understand the divinity of God, who actually possessed deity, all three equally, or did one possess it and then shared it with the others? The Western Church centered at Rome held the idea that divinity was co-equal and underived in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But relationally, the Son proceeds from the Father, and the Holy Spirit then proceeds from both Father and Son. This seemed to, well, accurately reflect the subordinate missions assigned the second and third members of the Trinity in the Bible. The Western Church adopted the revised Nicene Creed, but the Eastern Church balked. Everyone agreed that the Nicene Creed had been a work of the Spirit of God illuminating the minds of the Council to the Word of God. It was inviolable. How could Rome think to fiddle with it, and especially without consulting them? Why, at the councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon, the bishops committed themselves to never change the creed. According to the Eastern theologians, divinity dwelt only in the Father. The Father then shared the divine being with the Son and the Spirit. They could not say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. If the Spirit arose from the Father and the Son, the Son would possess divine co being co-equal with the Father. While there have been potential doctrinal rifts before, the East and West had always been able to reach a consensus. That historic consensus became increasingly distant at this debate, known as the Filioque controversy raged. Filioque is Latin for, and the Son. In 867, Photius, Bishop of Constantinople, formally denounced the added phrase. Five years later, Pope Adrian II offered to drop the phrase and the Son from the Nicene Creed. Rome would drop the Filioque Clause if the Eastern Church accepted the Pope's supremacy over the Church. 
Focius declined. Tap 1. Get ready for tap 2. One day in 1048, three shoeless pilgrims, Bruno, Humbert, and Hildebrand, walked together through the gates of Rome. Each on his own way would transform the Roman Church. Bruno was elected Pope Leo IX. He immediately set about reforming the Roman Church morally and theologically. To keep priests from passing ecclesiastical positions to their children, he demanded celibacy. Next, he moved to extricate the Church from secular entanglements and obligations to European nobility. Bruno and his successor popes really believed that God had given them authority over all Christians. The new bishop of Constantinople, Michael Cerularius, refused to recognize Bruno as pope. He closed every church in Constantinople that remained loyal to Rome. Bruno then sent envoys to Constantinople to negotiate peace. His chief envoy was his friend, Humbert. Before leaving Rome, Humbert wrote a bold notice in the pope's name. The official church notice is called a bull. We get our word bulletin from it. A bull was an authoritative announcement of intention to follow a particular course. It's based in the authority of the person who writes it or whose name it bears. Humbert made the journey from Rome to Constantinople, bull in hand. He arrived on July 16th of 1054, marched into the Hagia Sophia while communion was being observed. As one author says, Humbert's notice was a lot like a Texas Longhorn. It had a point here and a point there and a lot of bull in between. Condemned in the bull were the Eastern practice of allowing priests to marry, refusing to recognize baptism performed in Roman churches, and deleting the filioque clause. For the record, the Roman church had allowed priests to marry for several centuries, and the Eastern church did not refuse to recognize Roman baptism. They absolutely did not delete the phrase and the son from the creed. The Western church had added it. Humbert threw the bowl on the communion table, turned his back on the priest, and walked out, knocking the dust from his sandals and yelling, Let God judge! A deacon picked up the bowl and chased after Humbert, begging him to take it back. Humbert refused. The papal bowl was viewed by the Eastern Church as the proverbial gauntlet thrown at their feet by the Pope. The options seemed clear, either submit to the Pope's undisputed authority over the Church, or be considered by Rome a breakaway Church. Tap 2. The third and decisive tap that sundered east from west was the Crusades, specifically the fourth. I, I need to make clear that we're only dipping a toe into the subject of the Crusades for now. They're a major part of church history that we're going to spend a lot more time on in the future. For now, we're only looking at how the Crusades served to split the Western and Eastern churches. But even before that, I'm compelled to remind everyone that when I refer to the Eastern church, what I really mean is the Greek Orthodox or Byzantine Church, not the Church of the East that we've looked at in earlier podcasts. For simplicity's sake, picture a map of the ancient world, that swath of the globe that includes to the far left Spain and Northwest Africa up through England and Scotland. Now put the Middle East with Mesopotamia in the center of that mental map and at the far right China and Japan. Now, draw a mental circle over Spain, the British Isles, France, Germany, Italy, Scandinavia. Shade that blue. That's the Western Church, speaking Latin, centered at Rome under the popes. Now, draw another oval over all of East Europe and West Asia. Shade it green. That's the Byzantine Church, speaking Greek and centered at Constantinople under the patriarchs. Finally, 
draw a third oval over the Middle East, Mesopotamia, Persia, Central Asia, India, China, all the way to Japan and shade that red. That's the Nestorian Church of the East that speaks mainly Syriac and is headquartered at Nisibis or Edessa under the leadership of the Metropolitans. Note how much larger that third sphere is. It covers a territory and population much larger than the two to its west combined. Yet in the popular review of church history, this church of the East is often neglected. The reason for that neglect is a subject for a later episode. The point here is that when we speak of the break between the Eastern and Western churches, <laughs> let's be sure we understand that the description of the Byzantine church as the Eastern church, well, it's not really accurate. It's only a description of the Byzantine church as being to the geographic east of the Western or Latin church. Now, back to our look at the third tap that severed West from East. As we've seen in previous episodes, penance played a major role in the religious life of medieval Christians. Many believed that they could prove themselves worthy of God's favor by going on a pilgrimage. So, pilgrims traveled to shrines containing the bones of saints and relics from the biblical story. European cathedrals were centers where these sacred items were kept. But the greatest pilgrimage of all, one taken by not a few sincere believers, was to Jerusalem. Even today, with modern forms of transportation, a trip to Israel is a major event requiring special arrangements and a significant investment. Imagine what it meant for a pilgrim of the 10th or 11th century. They walked hundreds of miles, braved a risky journey aboard a ship that traveled through stormy, pirate-infested seas. This was no Disneyland ride. There were real-deal pirates who would slit your throat or sell you into slavery. It's all fun stuff. Pilgrimages became such a fixture of medieval society, to impede a pilgrim's journey was thought to imperil his or her salvation. So a whole trade developed in assisting pilgrims reaching their destination, whether it was some cathedral or holy shrine in Europe, or the great pilgrimage to the Holy Land. From AD 638, Muslims controlled Jerusalem and the routes leading there. They required pilgrims to pay special fees. So in 1095 in France, Pope Urban II responded by preaching one of history's most influential sermons. We'll go into the details later. For now, just know that he said, quote, Your eastern brothers have asked for your help. Turks and Arabs have conquered their territories. I, or rather the Lord, begs you, destroy that vile race from your brother's lands. Unquote. The response astounded both the Pope and Europe's nobility. The crowd of commoners began to chant, Deus volt, meaning God wills it. There was an immediate response of hundreds to go in relief of their imperiled brothers. As the days passed, the fervor spread, and soon nobles and serfs set off on the great pilgrimage to liberate Jerusalem from the infidel. They sewed crosses on their tunics and painted them on their shields. Nobles forged new swords and spears while commoners grabbed whatever they might make for a weapon and set off. They agreed to gather in Constantinople. The First Crusade was off and running. Among the peasants that set out on the First Crusade was a large group who followed a monk known as Peter the Hermit. The swarthy monk had not bathed in decades. He wrote a burrow that, according to some, bore a remarkable resemblance to its writer. Peter's preaching was even more powerful than his odor. In nine months, he gathered 20,000 European peasants to fight the Eastern infidel. They caused immediate chaos when they arrived on Constantinople. Complaints of robbery poured into the emperor's office. He knew the untrained peasants were no match for the Muslims who cut their teeth on conquest, but he couldn't let them linger in his city. 
So he ferried them across the river, where they began pillaging the homes of Eastern Christians, straining relations between the Byzantine and Roman churches. Two months later, these peasants marched straight into an ambush. Peter, their leader, still in Constantinople, begging for supplies, <laughs> he was the lone survivor. He joined another army, led by the European nobility that arrived later. These crusaders clashed with the Muslims in Antioch and then continued on to Jerusalem. On July 15th of 1099, Jerusalem fell to the crusaders. Near the Temple Mount, the blood flowed ankle deep. Newborns were thrown against walls. Crusaders torched a synagogue and burned the Jews inside alive. To this day, this wholesale slaughter affects how Jews and Muslims perceive the church. A couple more crusader campaigns were launched. Then, in 1198, a noble became Pope Innocent III. He inspired the Fourth Crusade that would finally divide Byzantine and Roman churches. The bottom line of the Fourth Crusade is that it was more than anything a commercial venture. The merchants of the powerful city-state of Venice agreed to supply the crusaders with ships at the cost of 84,000 silver coins. They were then to sail to Egypt and destroy a key Muslim base that would open up trade. In the summer of 1202, the crusaders arrived in Venice expecting to sail to Egypt. But there was a problem. Only one-third of the expected number of crusaders showed up, and they came up with only 50,000 silver coin. Not to worry. An ambitious eastern prince who fancied himself someone who deserved a fate and station better than the one that life had dealt him offered to finance the crusade. Get this, under the condition that the crusaders would sail to Constantinople first and dethrone the current emperor. Once that was done, they could be on their merry way. Pope Innocent III forbade the assault on Constantinople, but no one paid him any mind. On July 5, 1203, the crusaders arrived in Constantinople. But the people of the city were quite over the mess that these Europeans kept making of things, and they revolted. They preempted the crusaders' attempt to install their own emperor and instead selected a fiery anti-crusader. And instead selected a fiery anti-crusader ruler. Well, the crusaders were furious. They'd set out to destroy Muslims in Egypt and saw their side trip to Constantinople as just a brief diversion. Now they were stranded in the eastern capital. With the promise of plunder, the motive for their venture in the first place, they decided to go to town on those who now they deemed as their enemies, the people and city of Constantinople. One priest promised the crusaders if they died in the now holy cause of sacking the city, they had the Pope's blessing and would go immediately to heaven. Well, the Pope had said no such thing. On the contrary, he had forbidden the entire campaign. But people hear what they want to hear, and the crusaders took that priest's announcement as a license to do whatever they pleased. On Good Friday of 1204, with red crosses on their tunics, the crusaders sacked Constantinople. For three days, they raped and killed fellow believers. The city's statues were hacked to pieces and melted down. The Hagia Sophia was stripped of its treasures. A harlot performed sensual dances on the Lord's table, singing vile drinking songs. One writer lamented that the Muslims were more merciful than those who bore the cross on their garments. Neither the Byzantine Empire nor church recovered from those three horrible days. The Crusaders ruled the Eastern Empire for the next 60 years. The Eastern Emperor set up a new capital at nearby Nicaea, to which many of the people of Constantinople fled. They remained there until 1261, when an Eastern ruler retook the city of Constantinople. Pope Innocent III tried to prevent the fall of Constantinople, but no one had listened. Afterward, he attempted to reunite the churches, but it was too late. After the Fourth Crusade, the church was shattered into two communions. 
Today we know them as the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches. And while there have been a few attempts to effect a reconciliation recently, the weight of history has served to keep them at odds. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.